Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Feel free to download these audio files and share them with your friends and family. Please consider joining Beth Emanuel's virtual community and support our efforts for the kingdom by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. All right, so it's Tishbab, so we're going to do a little bit of learning. Thanks for coming. Uh, keep staying strong in these last couple hours. What is it, another two hours? Something like that? These last couple hours of Galut? Yeah, last couple hours of Galut. Okay, three hours and 13 minutes, but who's counting? Uh, I wanted to talk, I wanted to have a study on on the death of our master at this at at this time, because I've come to the opinion that Tishbaav is the appropriate day to study and to learn about the crucifixion and to learn about and talk about the death of Yeshua. Now, you would think that it would be Erev Pesach, because, of course, on Erev Pesach, the day before Passover, that's when the actual event happened. And so you would think like sort of a Good Friday, the Messianic Good Friday, Erev Pesach would be the most appropriate time to talk about the crucifixion, to read the crucifixion narratives, to discuss the passion of Yeshua. You know, And it's really a huge part of our faith and our tradition as uh, Messianic people, as disciples of Yeshua. If you think about the Gospels themselves, the Gospels seem primarily to have evolved around two main strands. The one strand being the teaching of Yeshua, and the other strand being the telling of his passion, his death, his crucifixion, and, of course, his resurrection. And so the longest chapter in, the, in each of the Gospels will be the chapter that tells the story of his death. So it's obviously a, a central story, a central narrative to our faith. So it's important that there's a time in which we actually, you know, um, mark off uh, the time to, to reckon with that central narrative of our faith, don't you think? All right, so you would think that it should happen then on Erev Pesach, like I'm saying, because that's the anniversary of the event. But there's a few problems with Erev Pesach uh, as a time to do that. First problem is that Erev Pesach is actually a, a, a festival. It's a minor holiday in itself. Um, and uh, it's a time of joy. And this isn't exactly a joyful narrative that uh, we're looking at. And this has often been a, a matter of puzzlement for me. For how do I merge my, uh, my Christian tradition of lamentation over the death of the Messiah with the Jewish uh, mandate of uh, rejoicing on Passover? And so there's sort of this odd thing that happens at the Seder where, you know, the Seder is like, Four glasses of wine. I mean, it's like this is festive times four. You know, when you're you're doing the seder, right? Uh, it's like, but but at the same time, let's let's try to have a downer moment now where we remember the master appropriately. Because as, as long as you take this cup and this bread, you know, you're proclaiming the death of Messiah, right? You know, so there's always been a little incongruity there for me. Uh, but my thinking on this has been shaped um, 
as I've reflected on the idea uh, that Tisha B'Av is also the appropriate day to remember the Holocaust. Because, you know, it's like, what is it about this particular occasion that makes it Holocaust Memorial Day? It's nothing. It's just that this is the day on which uh, we remember the exile. This is exile day. The Holocaust is the pinnacle of the exile. But what was the beginning of the exile? Or to put it another way, what was the beginning of the exile in Egypt when uh, the people went into the sojourn in Egypt? It was the betrayal of Joseph. Joseph went ahead of his brothers, ahead of the rest of the nation, into the Egyptian exile, right? He is uh, in advance of the nation, so to speak. He is sold into Egypt as a slave, ahead of the rest. He goes into Egypt ahead of the rest in order to bring a redemption to save them and ultimately uh, with his bones to lead them up out of Egypt, right? Okay, so this becomes a paradigm for understanding what Messiah is doing. And, and uh, in, in, the death of, in the death of Yeshua, Yeshua himself makes this equation for us. When he turns to the daughters of Jerusalem, as he's carrying his cross out of the city, he turns to the, the women who are keening behind him. He says, don't weep for me. This is actually the instruction of our master. He tells us, don't weep for me. If you're going to weep and mourn about something, you should be weeping and mourning about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's coming. This is actually his instruction for us. That we shouldn't be mourning his death. We should be mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, weep for yourselves and for your children. Weep for what's about to come upon you. Because if this is what they do to me, what will they do to you? If this is what they do when the tree is green, what will they do to you? And so it's along these lines that I'm able to, I'm, I'm, I've begun to be able to reconcile my own sense of loss over, over, over the loss of a Christian tradition of Good Friday, which I, you know, I've, I've uh, experienced, I've always experienced that in a very powerful way, especially in uh, the more liturgical churches, uh, for sure. But um, I'm beginning to understand it better now. That the appropriate place that even the master himself would have us mourning is this day. The day of the destruction of the temple. And as if, we weren't, as if that wasn't clear enough, God emphasizes the point by hitting that button twice in a row. Right? By hitting the Tishba'av as the destruction of the temple, he presses that button twice in a row. So Yeshua himself makes the equation uh, between his death and the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, uh, this temple, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again, and in many other passages and many other things that we've, we've discussed. But along these lines, I wanted to show you, this is all by way of introduction, just if we ever get to, I'm only going to teach for an hour because I'm going to go home and break fast with my family. Uh, but uh, um, this is by way of introduction before we look at any of the crucifixion narrative. I wanted to show you a few thoughts that occurred to me as, as uh, Israel was reading for us last night and Yoshi was reading for us from Echa, from Lamentations. A few things that um, I, I thought of. The first one is from Lamentations 3.15, where it says, and I noticed this in a note, 
uh, on the text. It says, he has filled me with bitterness. You know the word for bitterness? Maror. He has filled me with maror. He has made me drunk with wormwood. And so the Midrash Rabbah seizes on this word. He has filled me with maror in regard to Tishba'av. Tishba'av is the day that we're filled with maror. But when are we, when are we actually filled with maror? Yeah, Pesach, right. Uh, so it says, um, he has filled me with bitterness. On the first nights of the Passover festival, in connection with which it is written, they shall eat it with unleavened bread and maror. He hath sated me with wormwood. With what he filled me on the first night of Passover, he sated me with on the ninth of Av. So the night, and then, so, so you, you hear what the Midrash is saying? Saying, the experience that we had on the first night of Passover of the bitterness, that taste of bitterness, what he has, he fed me a little bit of maror, a little taste of bitterness on the first night of Passover. He has sated me, he has, that has satisfied me, he's satiated me on the ninth of Av. So there's a little foretaste that I had on the first night of Passover. The fullness of it is on Tishbaav. And then it goes on to say, uh, the night of the week on which the first day of Passover occurs, and this is Seder night, is always the same as that on which the night of the ninth of Av falls. So if you think about it, this year, for example, when was the first night of Passover? It was a Saturday night, Motzah Shabbat, we were doing our Seders, right? Yeah. And so this year, uh, Motzah Shabbat was also Tishbaav. So in a year when we'll do our Seder on, uh, uh, I don't know, what other night should we do a Seder? You do... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Any other night when? Well, what I what I mean is, you know how the seder, the Passover seder, moves around from from day to day in the week. You know, so some years it's like on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night or a Friday night or whatever. You will find then, according to the midrash, I haven't checked this out with the calendar, but according to the midrash, the, the tishbav will always fall on the same, the same day of the week that year. Interesting, huh? Anyway, so. It, Rabbi Kinzer, uh, who I've been, you know, I've been campaigning for his new book, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, because I've, I found this book to be an affirmation and a confirmation of so many of the things that we've been espousing here for so long. But he really takes this idea of the crucifixion of Yeshua, the death of Yeshua, as being the harbinger and the first step towards uh, the fulfillment in the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the exile of the Jewish people. He takes that idea and really drives it home textually, working from the book of Luke and from the book of Acts. And here's the premise that he drives it at from. He says, look, by the time Luke is written, maybe not Mark, but by the time Luke is written, the destruction of Jerusalem is an accomplished fact. It's already happened. I don't know. I, you know, I've... I've I don't understand the timing necessarily, but this is his premise. He's saying, you're, the people who are reading the Gospel of Luke in its final redaction, its final edition, and who are reading the Acts of the Apostles, already know how the story ends. So they can't help but see when they're reading about what the Romans did to Yeshua, 
what they're seeing in their minds is what the Romans did to Jerusalem and what the Romans did to the nation. So they're making, Luke doesn't have to spell it out. He does spell it out in several places, but he doesn't have to spell it out very clearly that there's a relationship here between these two things. All right. Uh, and then he, he points out that this relationship was lost thanks to supersessionism and replacement theology when the church began to look at the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as a sign of the triumphalism of Christianity, a sign that God was done with the Jews, done with the temple. And so the entire relationship that was meant to be there from the beginning, where Yeshua goes into this ahead of the rest of the nation, was lost. Instead, it became, it became a look, the cross, uh, the, the, when he died, the veil was torn. This shows that the cross of Christ uh, destroys and uh, abrogates the entire uh, Levitical system, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking the other day about reflecting on how Luke is the only gospel that opens up in the temple. Yes. John in the temple. Right. Well, John's father, Zechariah. And then it also, in the second chapter, has Yeshua in the temple as a young man. So, like, you have this gospel starting out with, like, yes. the Mashiach in right. the temple. And right. it ends with just... And Rabbi Kinzer also points this out. Uh, that it opens in the temple, keeps you in the temple, and then it concludes in the temple. In fact, with the disciples after the ascension, they return to, to Jerusalem and it says they're continuously in the temple worshiping God. And then the sequel opens with all these temple experiences with the community in and around the temple, Paul coming and going from the temple. Yes. Yes, I heard you mention that last night, and I had not heard that custom of like taking taking the parochet down off the ark. Now we don't have one because we have those doors, but if we, we if we had a curtain, we would have taken it down. Yeah, it is. So that was an interesting connection. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, Luke has very much got this going. There's, there, there's definitely the gospel that has the strongest, is making the strongest emphasis on the equation. And perhaps Rabbi Kins is right. Perhaps it's because it's the latest of, of these. Uh, next passage I wanted to show you that made me think. This was Lamentations 4.20, uh, where it says, The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Now, who's the one who was thrown in a pit? Think of Joseph, who was thrown in a pit. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit, right? But in this case, it says, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. So when it says the Lord's anointed, of course, the Hebrew is, the word is Mashiach. So the Lord's Messiah, you know, Hashem's Messiah was thrown uh, it was, was captured, was thrown 
in, in the pit. What does the term breath of our nostrils mean? Uh, th- this term isn't used anywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures that I know of. But the idea of the breath of our nostrils is like, this is the thing for, that's keeping us alive. It's the thing that's sustaining us. You know, it's, it's the hope that's sustaining us. And the idea is that maybe this is a reference to um, uh, King Josiah. It's probably a reference to King Josiah and his sons, those last Judean kings who were the, the last of the, of the monarchy of King David at the end of uh, the end of the monarchy. So uh, these, the, these kings, uh, it says in the Torah that your king will go into exile, right? In this case, uh, it says... He was the one of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. So under his shadow, we'll be protected from the nations. He'll keep us strong, is the idea. Now, uh, this also, if you think about Messiah, this is the idea of Messiah. This is the hope of Messiah, that under Messiah, you know, then the nations will be subdued under Messiah. And so we think of uh it's almost certainly a reference to this passage in the Road to Emmaus story at the end of Luke when the two disciples are walking and this stranger comes and is walking along with them and he says, why are you so sad? And What's wrong? Why are your face is so downcast? He says, are you the only ones who don't know what's happened? Uh, and then they tell him about Yeshua, a man powerful in word and deed. And, and they, they, they say... Uh, that we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem us. It sounds very much like this passage, uh, under whose shadow we had hoped that we would live among the nations. So then the, th- the third one that caught my attention is just a few verses. Uh, maybe this was in 413. I, I, don't, I don't remember where this one was. I just wrote it down. Uh, but it's the verse, the passage that says, Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill. Youths stumbled under loads of wood. And so the, the opening uh, reference, princes were hung by their hands. For us, that immediately evokes the image of crucifixion where we see someone hung by their hands, right? And when it says, youths stumbled under loads of wood, the first thing it brings to mind for me is the master stumbling under the weight of the cross when they, they uh, then took the cross and put it on Simon from Cyrene. But it also invokes for me the image of Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain, up Mount Moriah, uh, when his father Abraham is taking him for the binding of Isaac. So these three passages, I thought, each of these three passages further emphasize this point of connection between the death and the crucifixion of Yeshua and the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. So what is the significance of the death of Yeshua? Obviously, we've found a universal significance that the gospel, that the church has proclaimed and carried, and this universal significance of uh, atonement that comes through his righteousness and his suffering. Uh, this, is, this is really you know, in the, important, the important thing on the universal level. But within the context of the Bible, 
And the Bible is primarily about Israel. You know, we think of the, the death of Yeshua as like, if, if I was to ask you, if I was to ask a church, say, why did Yeshua die? Why, what was the death of Yeshua? It's like, he died for our sins, right? He died for, for everybody's sins. But I would suggest to you that before that, before it was he died for everybody's sins, the emphasis was he died for Israel. If you look at the number of times that the word sin appears in the Bible, I can't remember what the actual number is, but I'll make some numbers up. Uh, it's about 500 times. All right. But how many times does the word Israel appear in the Bible? Thousands of times. The Bible is primarily a book about Israel. Now, to be fair, he died then for the sins of Israel. And then as John, the Jew, says, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Like it says in Isaiah, the Messiah says in Isaiah, it's too small of a thing to ransom just the tribes of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations as well. But to the Jew first, right? And also then to the nations. That's the, the order of things. Now, when we talk about crucifixion, this, this you know, uh, very cruel mode of punishment, it seems particular in our mind that the main person who gets crucified, of course, is Jesus, and because we, we're constantly seeing him depicted as crucified, even to this day. And Paul says, I resolve to know nothing but Christ crucified. But in the days of Jesus, in the days of Yeshua, there were a lot of people getting crucified. Crucifixion was a fairly common mode of Roman dissuasion for the populace you know, that you don't defy Rome. If you were a Roman citizen, you were exempt from crucifixion. That was one of the big benefits of being a Roman citizen was that you couldn't get crucified and instead they would just cut off your head, which was a lot cleaner, quicker way to die. Because crucifixion is about the most horrible death that you can imagine. They nail you up on, this, uh, on, on a pole, on a post, in whatever pose uh, they, they find amusing. They nail you up there. Then the birds come and eat at you while you're hanging there. And um, tetanus sets in before you die. Because you don't die from these small wounds. They they close pretty quickly. You lose a lot of blood, obviously, but you're just in a lot of pain as you're, you're, you're stuck there. You're just stuck there, right? In a lot of pain. And then tetanus starts to set in. You know what tetanus does? The doctor knows what tetanus does. Yeah, we got two doctors here. The doctors will tell us what tetanus does. Tetanus, uh, it's also called lockjaw. So your muscles start to all contract and twist. So you're like, you're hanging here, twisting uh, as, uh, as, as, and some people would, they last for days and days like this. So this is why the soldiers were so surprised to find that the master had already expired, that he was all already dead. Uh, after some six hours, he had been suffering uh, on the cross for some six hours. 
But so we, it's, it's this horrible thing, this horrible grizzle. Why would the Romans do this? They put up these crosses. They'd always put them right by the roadside too. You know, like nowadays you put the billboard up where everybody's going to see it. This was the Roman billboard. Like, hi, we're Rome. We rule this land. And if you defy us, this will happen to you too. That was the idea. And so in Judea, where Yeshua was uh, working and with, with, where he was moving back and forth in and out of Jerusalem, they would have probably seen these crosses every time they went to the festivals. Every time they're going up, these crosses would be outside the city. And who's on the crosses? The Gospels say robbers, but that's, not, that's, that's a bad translation. It's terrorists. This is how Rome dealt with terrorism. The main, the main reason crosses were employed was to dissuade people from joining terrorist anti-Roman organizations. And this was one of the... So when we meet Barabbas, and Pilate says, he says, he has a custom. We have a custom of releasing a terrorist because they're constantly arresting these terrorists. We have a custom of releasing a terrorist on the, on the festival to uh, appease the people so that they won't revolt. The festivals were always the most dangerous times when Rome expected revolt to happen because all of a sudden all these hot-headed Galileans would come up to Jerusalem. You'd have a million Jews crowded in the city. It was hot. People got angry. They started shouting. You know, So Rome was, would, would put out extra soldiers. They'd send up an extra garrison to Jerusalem uh, for the festival. And, and Pilate thought, you know what the people would like if we release one of these terrorists. So he says, who do you want me to release for you? Yeshua or Barabbas? And they say, we want Barabbas, right? Well, his people are there. His terrorist, his terrorist uh, followers are there cheering for his release. But this shows us this, uh, this also is a precursor to the events in 70 Common Era. The destruction of Jerusalem is the story of terrorism. It's a story of terrorism against Rome. It was uh, precipitated by terrorist uprisings. More than one terrorist group, they're called the Zealots, you know, the different Zealots, uh, Zealot groups. And they instigated this war against Rome intentionally. Some uh, believing, foolish enough to believe they could really beat Rome. You know, it's like, um, it's, it, it would be, the, uh, uh, the comparison might be, uh, it, it's, it's kind of like Costa Rica taking on the United States of America. You know, like, yeah, we can do it. We can take them. You know, the, so, some, something like that. Or, uh, but others believed, because they're religious as well, uh, the, others believed we can force God's hand to bring the Messiah. We start this war with Rome. And so Yeshua was warning us, saying, many false messiahs are going to come in my name. You know, uh, I was thinking today, as we're going through the keynote, I was thinking today about, um, about right as before the temple burned, there was one such, such false messiah, even up to that last minute. There was a false messiah down in the city of Jerusalem, in the lower city, who said to the people, this is the very moment, because the Romans have pushed in where they're ready to eat. They're on the Temple Mount now. 
He says, they're on the Temple Mount. This is the moment that we've been waiting for when God's obviously going to send the the Messiah, the redemption. We just need to show our uh, faith, our emunah, right? By going up to the Temple Mount now to receive him. So they went up to the Temple Mount at that time and they, they they were climbing up onto the roofs of the colonnades when the conflagration started and they were burned alive on those colonnades. Uh, even up, so you see this this equation between Yeshua, who is he's taken out and he's crucified with who? One on his right, one on his left. Zealot bands, these warring zealot parties, and even in the destruction of Jerusalem, one of the things that we see is that these different uh, terrorist organizations are at war with each other, and they actually end up killing more Jews than the Romans do. This is what Josephus says. Uh, With their fratricidal, uh, inter, uh, their their war with each other, you know. Uh, While Rome just sits and with the city surrounded, they, they, they bide their time while the people are, uh, are, are killing each other and throwing the bodies out of the city. This is the period of time in which Yochanan ben Zechai, uh, you know, he has to uh, hide in a coffin. He has to like pretend he's dead in order to get past the zealots because the zealots won't let anyone out of the city alive, right? Anyway, so you have these, these warring bands of zealots and, and even on the cross then, Yeshua is on the cross and on his right is one zealot on the left is another zealot they're not robbers these are not house robbers these are terrorists and they say and then they start to fight with each other first they're abusing him but then they start to fight with each other and the one who repents says look we deserve this we we deserve what we we have this coming because we're murderers we're terrorists but this man this man's innocent right well, read in the, from the perspective of, of knowing that the terrorists actually had this coming, that they incited this war, that they, uh, were, their wickedness, they, they are the, when the Talmud talks about the sin of baseless hatred, sinat chinam, that brought the destruction of the temple, it's speaking directly about these people, about these terrorists. Uh, that's the that's what we should be remembering when we see him crucified with what with with a, a robber on his right and a robber on his left. So the midrash talks about Hashem's anger with the people and how he's going to bring punishment, and it makes. It makes a, uh, there's a parable in the Midrash that goes kind of like this. I don't remember it exactly, but I'll just kind of make it up a little bit. Okay. There's a father who's very angry with his son. His son has just made him so furious. Now, this father has a very precious vase. It's like the most precious possession that he has. This, it's a Ming dynasty vase. I don't know. It's some very precious uh, object that he has and and he's always wants that protect be careful don't play ball in the house you know that kind of thing he's like the vase right and uh but his son has made him so furious he's so angry with his son that that he wants to hurt his son 
But instead, he takes the vase and he smashes the vase. All right. So, what's the meaning of this story? The sages told this story to explain the destruction of the temple. That the temple was so precious to God. But, and the question is, why would a deity destroy his own house? The Romans said that the temple was destroyed because Zeus was more powerful than Hashem, God forbid. You know, he's chas v'shalom and so forth. But, but uh, you know, so, so, and, the, and the Jewish people said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God, God did this. And they said, well, why would God destroy his own house? Why would your God destroy his own house? So they tell this parable. They say, see, he did this in order to spare his people. So rather than hurt his son, the father destroyed his vase, right? Likewise, rather than obliterate the Jewish people and completely wipe out the Jewish people, uh, Hashem vented his anger, so to speak. And this is all so to speak. It's not like God is like, you know, has this terrible temper that he starts kicking things and slamming doors. You know, uh, these are all anthropomorphisms. But going with anthropomorphism, the idea is then that the temple died for the sins of Israel. That's That's the equation that the sages would make. That the temple suffered for the sins of Israel so that Israel could be saved. Now, if you take that same theological idea and then rewind it by 40 years to the death of Yeshua, we see our master in the same position, the same, the same situation. He has been, I and mean, put it in context, His message has been consistently a message of warning Israel about what could happen if they don't repent. He's been offering the kingdom saying, we really need to repent. We need to love each other. Forget about this terrorism, these ideas you have of being, of of fighting Rome. You know what? Blessed are the meek. They're the ones that will inherit the land. Blessed are those who are merciful and blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness and and, this different message we should be turning the other cheek and if someone forces you to go one mile go go an extra mile if somebody takes your tunic let him have your your coat as well or maybe that was backwards takes your coat let him have your tunic as well Uh, but it's an anti-terrorist message this anti uh anti-zealotry message that he's been preaching and he's been warning us we need to love our neighbor as ourselves who's my neighbor your neighbor is the other person you're the neighbor you're the neighbor and you need to treat your fellow human being with love and and set aside this baseless hatred because if we don't you know if we don't if we don't repent It'll be worse for all of us. You know that tower that fell where a couple men, a couple people got killed when Pilate was forcing them to build that, that aqueduct and uh, that tower fell at Siloam and a couple people got killed? Do you think those guys were worse sinners than everybody else? No. Tell you what, we're all, that's going to be all of us. We're all going to die in the collapse if we don't repent. This was his message. This is what he'd been saying for, for, for all this time. And he saw that at a certain point, it was inevitable that 
that the people, the, the, they weren't going to repent. The repentance wasn't going to happen. And so at that time in the Gospel of Luke, right after the transfiguration where Elijah comes and, and tells him uh, about his departure, at that time in the Gospel of Luke, it makes a very profound statement. It says, then he set his face towards Jerusalem. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke tells the story of this long <laughs> pilgrimage to Jerusalem that's like incredibly long. It's chapter after chapter after chapter. It's uh, been rearranged to create this sense of like he's headed towards Jerusalem the whole time. For years he's headed towards Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke at this point. He's like I'm going this way and that way and this way if you follow the geography. That's not the point. Luke's making a rhetorical point that he set his face towards Jerusalem. At that point, he realized what was going to happen. And he began to tell his disciples, the Son of Man must be given over to to the uh, the high priest and they'll turn him over to the Gentiles and he'll be... And he'll be put to death. He'll be mistreated and he'll be put to death. And we have him warn them three times on his way to Jerusalem. He warns them about what's going to happen. What's he doing? He's throwing himself in front of the train, throwing him. He sees the train coming. And as the king of Israel, he's going first. He's going first into the fire. Why? Well, the reason, the sages say, that Hashem vented his anger on the temple was that Hashem knew the temple could be rebuilt. The temple could be, it could be destroyed temporarily, but ultimately the temple could be rebuilt and could be restored. Whereas, so, so this, is, this is why the temple died for the sins of the people, because the temple could take it. It's a building. You can rebuild it, right? Likewise with our master Yeshua. He goes first into the exile to bear the brunt of the, the blow, to, to take, to take the, 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 the most of the, the lion's share of the blow that's coming upon the people, he can take it because he knows that he will rise again, that he, in his righteousness and in his merit and his virtue, Hashem will resurrect him. And in this way, he's like, he, he's, again, he's like the temple that can, can be rebuilt, that can be restored. There's also this principle of the suffering of the righteous at work, which we've we've taught we've taught in, we've taught on before. But what I want you to see is primarily I'm trying to teach you this idea of the crucifixion as a harbinger of the coming destruction of the temple, but also as a more than just a sign of what's to come, sort of a uh, a first fruit of it, and a catalyst, even. And the scene that I brought up, I brought this up a few times in in sermons around Tishbaav, but the scene that sticks in my mind the most is described by Josephus where he talks about how the hills around Jerusalem were denuded, uh, all the trees were removed to be used for siege works and crosses. And that the Romans actually 
even though lumber obviously it was it was so valuable they had to start to cart it in like they had to import it from a distance because they had stripped all the hills nevertheless they felt it was important enough to actually surround the entire city of Jerusalem with crosses and those Jews who would escape the zealots and get over the walls and try to escape to the Romans to surrender, they would nail up on these crosses in obscene poses uh, for their entertainment. This is another thing that as a reader of the Gospels in the late first century, as we're hearing the story of the Gospel and the crucifixion of Yeshua, that would be very clear in our mind, the memory of that event of the crucifixion of Jerusalem, of these these people hanging there for uh, days and days. Josephus even knew one man who he recognized. He tells a story of recognizing a certain man who is hanging on a cross, and he he implores uh, Titus to let this man down. And he does. He lets this man down from the cross, and then they bring a physician and start to nurse him back to health. And this is one of the few survivors of a Roman crucifixion. But the point that I want you to, I, that I want, I want to make again is the significance of the cross is lost on us if we don't see the bigger picture of how this story ends. We're supposed to, we're supposed to see this within its context. Of, it reminds me of that film, The Passion of the Christ, I remember when the Passion of the Christ came up, there's, you know, big controversy. About, why was there a controversy, controversy about the Passion of the Cross? Christ? Yeah, it was supposed to be anti-Semitic, right? It was like, it, and maybe it was. I know Mel Gibson was, is. Um, so um, maybe it was anti-Semitic. I'd never saw the movie. But I remember that there was a suggestion uh, that um, was given to Mel Gibson and, and, the, and the film company that was releasing the film. And I think it was, I don't remember who made the suggestion. It might have just been the Anti-Defamation League. And they said, look, all you need to do is uh, end the movie, put up, put up a little, uh, uh, so, some words at the, at the very end of the movie that, that say, uh, you know, some hundred thousand Jewish men were, were crucified in the first century. Yeah. Of course they didn't, you know, but because that, I, I suppose to their mind, that would diminish the significance of Yeshua's crucifixion. It doesn't diminish it. It actually, it actually shows us the significance of it, that he goes as the king. He goes as the forerunner, like it says. Now, when we read in Echa, in Lamentations, princes were hung by their hands Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the mill. Youth stumbled under loads of wood, like Isaac carrying his cross. I mean, this is, to me, this is the significance. And of course, we talk about the, we've already talked about the tearing of the veil a little bit. What about the dividing of the garments? You know, this is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 begins. And if you read through Psalm 22, you realize image after image after image in Psalm 22 has been taken and applied in the Gospels, that the Gospel writers intentionally are pointing us towards Psalm 22 as they narrate the story of the crucifixion of Yeshua, right? All right. 
One of these passages in Psalm 22 actually says they, they cast lots for my garments and divided them among them. You know? And so this is when, when the gospel writers see this happening at the cross of Yeshua, that the Romans are casting lots uh, for Yeshua's garments, uh, they, they make the equation to Psalm 22. But I'd like to point you to the larger picture of what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the loot and the plunder of the temple. They're thinking about the temple treasures, the veils, the, 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 the great tapestries, the, uh, the menorah, the gold, the vessels being looted by the Romans and carried off. As Josephus describes, when on Tishbaab, when the first uh, Romans broke through, uh, there was a soldier who threw a torch in. Woo! Right and uh, managed to get a conflagration going. And Josephus really tries to paint Titus in a positive light since he's living in his house <laughs> and on the payroll. Uh, so Titus, it wasn't Titus's fault, and he keeps saying over and over and over again. You know, Titus was really trying to stop them from burning the temple. But anyway, so the soldier throws, throws us in, and the conflagration starts and, and Josephus says, at that moment, it became like all the soldiers, all the Roman soldiers on the Temple Mount became as if possessed by demons, he says. And they all ran on t- in, into, the, into the sanctuary to, to loot because they're like all like, it's on fire. We need this. We want the gold now. Mm-hmm. But that, but that wasn't happening at the same time. No. But they were picturing, like the Jews were picturing the Romans. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask. I'm asking the class to imagine reading the gospel narrative after the destruction of the temple, because the crucifixion of Yeshua is a precursor to that event and a catalyst to that event. And most of our Gospels, our earliest Gospel is Mark, which is written about five years uh, before the destruction of the Temple. And um, probably it wasn't in wide circulation uh, at that time. So pretty much anyone who had a written copy of our four canonical Gospels was reading them after these events had taken place. Does that make sense? So, with each of these scenes in the crucifixion narrative, for that reader, it's evocative of this great national catastrophe that we have just gone through. And they're seeing Yeshua as King of the Jews. It says King of the Jews. They're seeing him as the forerunner going into this tragedy ahead of the rest of the nation. Does that make sense? All right. So I'm not suggesting that the gospel writers engineered the narrative to intentionally allude to these things. Instead, that's God's divine design. That's his plan. And this was Yeshua's intention too, to say, I'm going to go into this exile ahead, just as Joseph went into Egypt ahead of the rest of the nation going into the sojourn in Egypt. 
so the tearing of the veil, uh, we talked about, we've spoken about the dividing of the... Well, you know, so we can actually see this like uh, tri- on Titus's arch. Titus's triumph- triumphal arch in Rome is still there to this day. You can s- still actually see the picture <laughs> chiseled in the stone of the Romans carrying off the goods of the temple. You can actually, that's, it's like a snapshot of the menorah from the temple in the first century, chiseled into the stone of Rome. Uh, you know the, um, you've all seen the Colosseum. You think Rome, what do you think? Colosseum. You know the Colosseum? Everybody knows the Colosseum. You know why it's called the Colosseum? Because it's right next to the Colossus, which was uh, a big, uh, enormous, enormous statue of Nero. Uh, by the time they built the Colosseum, the Colossus wasn't there anymore. But that was still the spot, the Colosseum spot. They built the Colosseum, Vespasian built the Colosseum to celebrate his victory over Jerusalem. And he funded it, this most impressive structure in Rome that's still standing to this day. He funded it with the proceeds from this war. In other words, with the treasure looted from the temple. So that that great edifice in Rome is still standing there to this very day as a testament to the plundering of God's house in Jerusalem. As our master hangs on the cross uh, and, and uh, the soldiers are going around to break the legs of, of the people on the cross, this is the reason they, have to, they want these people to die quickly because of the Yom Tov that's coming up and it's a special request from the Jews that they would be uh, taken down uh, and not so nobody, they don't have to deal with them on Yom Tov. And they come to the master and they find that he is already dead. But not sure, uh, one of the soldiers thrusts this spear through. And John makes this, like, this, makes this big point about this, that blood and water came out. They saw blood and water coming out. And, and he doesn't really explain why that's so significant to him. Instead, he moves off into the disciple who saw this, testified, he saw it, you know, is just like, no, really, this really happened. There really was blood and water. It's kind of a strange thing. I've heard medical explanations. I don't think that's what John was going for. Like John was saying, yeah, so this shows us that there was asphyxiation and there's, you know, there's, I, don't think, I don't think he's looking for a medical explanation. I think he's looking at some symbolic explanation, some, some sort of spiritual symbolic uh, meaning of the blood and water. And if we think, okay, what does the blood and water represent? Blood is atonement, water is the spirit, you know, can come up with, we could come up with a lot of stuff, right? I mean, maybe we should. But if we think of the temple, what does blood and water represent in the temple? Yeah, the blood represents the sacrifices. The water represents the revelation of God that's, that's to flow forth from the Messianic era temple. We have this in several prophecies in Ezekiel and Zechariah. And Yeshua himself cited this prophecy. He said, rivers of living water will flow from within it, he says. Uh, or from within him. It's the same, uh, it's the same pronoun. 
He says, as it is written, rivers of living water will flow from within it. And you have to say, where, where is it written? Liver, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Well, it's in the prophecies of Ezekiel that speak of the living water that's going to flow out of the temple. It's in the prophecies of Zechariah that speak of the living water that's going to flow out of the temple in the Messianic era. So when Yeshua is depicted, crucified, and blood and water is flowing from the wound in his side, the blood representing the sacrifices, that, that's usually what's flowing all over in the temple, is the sacrifices, right? Uh, the, so this represents the atonement. But also, the water flowing represents the revelation and the outpouring of the Spirit of the Messianic era, uh, which comes from the restored temple. The place where he's crucified, it tells us, is a place called Golgotha, or the skull. The skull. Why is it called the skull? You might have heard the explanation that it's called the skull because there was a little hill, there was this little knob of a hill that stuck up and kind of looked like a skull. Have you ever heard that explanation? Uh, that's... One theory, it's a very old theory, but we don't really know that that's the case. And the way that limestone erodes in Jerusalem, it never happens. I mean, it's just, it's geologically not something that happens in Jerusalem that you would get a shape like that out of, out of the limestone. The other explanation, which is older and is attributed to the Jewish community, to the Messianic Jewish community of the second century. And it's on the level of Midrash and legend. So you have to think Jewish, think Midrash, think... Now, we don't take everything so literally. It's more about the theology. You know, get yourself into that mindset. The other explanation is that it's called Golgotha, the place of the skull, because... It was at this location, in a cave in this location, that Adam was buried, the first man. And that his skull was found there. We know that it was actually, um, the location uh, was actually a quarry, a limestone quarry. So the idea is that these quarriers came across a skeleton interred you know, in the rock, and they said, this was Adam. <laughs> but in any case, the theology is telling because it's a, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a theological tip because this gets into Yeshua, the, the theology of, of Yeshua's death uh, as the second Adam. He comes as the second Adam to undo the sin of the first Adam, which is all explained in the, in the book of, of Romans. And that's along those lines we kind of pan out from this smaller national tragedy of the Jewish people, the destruction of the temple, to the larger picture. And they're not unrelated. Just as Jerusalem, as Jerusalem's destruction for the sin of the people and the exile of, of the Jewish people from the land of Israel is, is uh, at play here. As we, as we zoom out, so to speak, as we zoom out from that picture, we see that all of humanity is in exile. 
All of humanity is in exile from Eden since the days of Adam. And so it's not just for the sins of the Jewish people and not just as a precursor of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 Common Era, not only uh, as a forerunner of the exile of Israel, but also on behalf of the entire world. As the Apostle John says, who was, became an atonement for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. But the point, the biggest point that I want you to take home from this is that these two events, the crucifixion of Yeshua and the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, are, they should be inseparable in our minds. And it's really kind of exciting because they have been separated. They've been separated since uh, the second century. They've been separated. And it's only now, at this very hour, on this very day, in this very place, you know, and among other, other messianic groups uh, like our own, that we're seeing, wait a second, these things, these belong together. These, these should, this is about that, and that's about this. And we're seeing the relationship uh, between, between these things. The idea is that Yeshua said, I must pass through it first. If the, if the nation will not repent, then perhaps I can, take, I can take the blow for the people. And so he willingly goes to his death. This is, this is the will of his father. He says, if you can take this cup from me, so be it. But if not, I'll drink the cup. And he goes into this suffering. And the good news that's part of that is, is that he does pass through it. And not only does he pass through it, but he comes out on the other side alive. And so this is good news for the Jewish people. This is good news for Israel and ultimately good news for all of humanity. Because if he went into the trial and suffering ahead of the nation and he suffered and died as a, 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 a sign of what was to befall the nation, then likewise, his resurrection comes as a sign of what is yet to come for the restoration of the people, the restoration of the nation, the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple, and ultimately all of humanity. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul